I'm Imtiaz Tayeb, and this is The Take. Every week, we bring you a story from Al Jazeera journalism. And this week, we're in Lebanon, in a Syrian refugee camp to be precise. It's a temporary home to the highest number of refugees per capita in the world. Among them are at least a million Syrians, just a fraction of the millions displaced by eight years of war there. Our producer, Jasmine Bayoumi, wanted to know why some are going home, even though most are staying put. This should be a happy story, and for some people, it is. About a year ago, trucks and buses filled with refugees started heading home to Syria from Lebanon. What would be the feeling of anyone who is going back to his country, to his mother, to his nation? My happiness cannot be described. They were loaded down with all of their belongings. Suitcases, mattresses, carpets, water jugs just hanging over the sides. But the vast majority is staying put back in Lebanon. And the strain is showing. Many Lebanese politicians want them to go. Life in Lebanon is really rough for these refugees. But the war in Syria isn't really over yet. So why is anyone going back at all? And what's keeping the rest here? The answers to those questions are part of the path to ending Syria's war. Much of the country is back under the government's control. But it's not clear it's a country many Syrian refugees will want to return to. Sara Musa is Al Jazeera's Lebanon bureau producer. She went to a camp in the Bekaa Valley to talk to some Syrians. I just entered an informal Syrian refugee camp. In the background of the camp, you can see a series of mountains covered with snow. The camp smells like diesel fuel and burnt wood. Children are playing next to a pool of water. Two of them are jumping in the mud. Their parents are going to be pretty, pretty upset. Their feet are covered in mud. As she roams around the camp, Sarah gets invited for tea and coffee. And she ends up talking to Shaima. That's not her real name. And Shaima is trying to get her kids inside for lunch. She's a mother of five. She's been living in this camp for about two years. Shaima shares a tent with her husband and kids. They came from Al Ghuta, near Damascus. Her oldest son is a soldier, and he's still fighting for Bashar al-Assad's army. She hasn't seen him in three years, but they manage to talk every few weeks. Shaima dreams of going back, and her eyes just light up when she remembers the past. Uh, Shaima says she remembers the food, everything, the whole atmosphere. Uh, she says the most beautiful memory of her life is that of bringing her children to school in the morning and picking them up in the afternoon. She hopes one day she gets to go back. So Sara asked Shaima why she and her family chose to come to Lebanon of all places. Why not Jordan or Turkey or Europe? She says, why would she go to Europe, a foreign place? She doesn't want to be among foreigners. She wants to be here in a country she feels like it's almost her own. 
Shaima says that once she arrived in Lebanon, she felt safe. Things were quiet. They didn't have to be afraid of airplanes and bombings anymore. But that safety came at a price. And that's the total lack of permanence in Lebanon. There are no formal UN-run camps there for Syrians. The government also doesn't consider them refugees. They call them displaced people or economic migrants. So they end up living in apartments, abandoned buildings or empty stores, or in tent settlements like this one. We heard Shaima say that she feels like Lebanon is close to home. But a lot of other Syrians will tell you that if they had a choice, they would not end up here. They're afraid to venture too far away from their camps because they feel that they could be arrested if they don't have their proper paperwork. Zena Khodr is Al Jazeera's correspondent in Lebanon. She's been reporting on the region for the network for more than a decade. And uh, in, in some communities, in some areas of Lebanon, uh, they're forced to leave. They're not wanted. Here they don't get much um, much help. If, if you go to refugee camps, it's all their tents are made of plastic sheeting. Concrete is not allowed to be used in the camps. The government does not allow the UN to use concrete because they don't want these camps to become per- permanent structures. You go to the camps in, in southern Turkey, for example, it's... When you compare, I hate to say this, but you would think it's a five-star hotel compared to the way people live here. And there's a history to that. Back in 1948, Lebanon took in more than 100,000 Palestinian refugees. Everybody thought that would be temporary and they were never made citizens. And their camps have become more like neighborhoods. And that's part of the reason the Lebanese government wants the Syrians to go back. It's just the sheer numbers. Lebanon is a tiny country. You can drive from north to south in four or five hours. About six million people live there, including about a million Syrian refugees. Just driving in the streets, you'll see at least one in every five cars with a Syrian plate number. Or if you drive down Hamra Street, a, a busy commercial district in, in, in the heart of Beirut, a lot of the, the restaurants are now um, owned by Syrians. And the same, the same restaurants that were in Damascus, their franchises opening, opening here you do feel their presence in this country. And of course, up in the Bekaa is where the poor um, Syrians who uh, live in, uh, in informal settlements, they are, they are closer to the, to, to the Syrian border. And you see them working in fields in different companies up in, in the Bekaa. To a certain extent, they're discriminated against here. Um, this is a very divided country, uh, politically as well as society. So you can imagine the Syrian refugees, they find themselves in, in the middle of this. Okay, Zena. so now we're getting a little bit more into the politics of this. Syria has played a huge role in Lebanon's history, and they have a pretty complicated relationship. How did that evolve exactly? Uh, for many, many, many years, Syria was the dominating force in, in Lebanon. It had troops for many, many years. It intervened during the civil war. The Arab League asked Syria to send troops. The troops stayed. So Syria Syria used to look at Lebanon as one of its provinces. And of course, uh, a lot of Lebanese um, opposed this. So it was this love-hate relationship for, for a very, very long time. And when the, the uprising began, the Lebanese who opposed Syria's domination of Lebanon, uh, they supported the opposition, and those who supported Damascus supported the government. So this is the relationship between, between these two countries. 
That love-hate relationship Zena mentions has caused friction over the decades, but it got more complicated in 2011. That's when Syria's uprising started. At first, people were able to flee to Lebanon fairly easily. Many Lebanese opened their towns and villages to them. But the numbers grew, and so did the tension. Lebanon has imposed tighter controls at its borders. There are too many incidents of workers abused or beaten on the streets. And Lebanese government officials have said those tensions have reached a dangerous level. Schools started running double shifts to handle all the new students. The war followed Syrians into Lebanon, and there were bombings and clashes near the border and in Beirut. Some towns imposed curfews on Syrians, or even drove them out. There were Lebanese who were against all of this, but supporting Syrians wasn't particularly popular. And in 2015, Lebanon started requiring visas for Syrians for the first time. Now, the Syrian government has regained control of much of the country. And there's a new government in Lebanon. It seems like we're seeing the beginnings of a new direction. Zena has been reporting on that as well. Lebanon's politicians are divided on whether it is safe for Syrian refugees to return home. But the refugee affairs portfolio is now run by a politician allied to the Syrian government. The newly appointed minister Saleh Gharib's first act in office was to visit Damascus. It's so further, further. tell us about the relationship between Lebanon and the Syrian government. I mean, let's, let's talk about Saleh Gharib, the new Lebanese minister for refugee affairs. It's the pro-Damascus camp who holds power now in Lebanon, who dominates both the government and parliament. And this is why refugees were, were, were sort of concerned that, okay, what now? Are they going to force us back? They haven't, they haven't been forced back. I mean, nobody has been forcibly put in a bus and sent back to Syria. At least, at least there are no known cases. But there is fear that this will happen. But if Lebanon were to do this, then it would be going against the will of the West and the international community. So it's unlikely to do that now. But with this new man in place, we might see a different policy evolve. Fear and uncertainty, familiar feelings for refugees. And that's just about life in a different country. Going back to Syria brings up a whole new set of problems, both for people who say they support Assad, like Shaima does, and for people who oppose him. Sara, our producer at the refugee camp, asked Shaima if she was ready to go back. Shaima says that on TV they say it's over, but in real life it's not. If it was really over, no one would stay in Lebanon. Everyone would return home to their houses, to their country, back to their lives. If it were safe, she says she wouldn't stay here because her family supports Bashar al-Assad. But the problem is her children wouldn't be able to deal with the fear. They'd be too scared. So Zina, Syrians are hearing politicians on both sides, in both Syria and Lebanon, saying that there are safe areas to go back to. Do you think that's true? No, it's not. I know for for a fact, and I have been in contact with people who now live in government-controlled territories. They live in fear, and um, and some of them have had to to make their way out in one way or the other. Sometimes they bribe um, army soldiers, army commanders to to pass through checkpoints and to leave the country because staying there was just too dangerous. There is no rule of law. The security agencies who which were involved in human rights violations and war crimes over the years uh, still act with impunity. 
the guns have fallen silent in many areas in Syria, but there are still no security guarantees for these people. And that's why they don't go back. But it's not just that. It's, of course, these people have no homes to return to. Their homes are destroyed, leveled to the ground. These people cannot go back because they cannot find jobs. Or, for example, uh, men are afraid to go back because they will be forced into the army. And if they go to the army, who's going to take care of their wife and kids? So there are quite a number of reasons why people do not go back. But this is the pressure, the pressure that comes from the Lebanese government, and we have to remember it is allied with the, with the, with the Syrian government, is that, okay, international community, you're providing these people with aid here in Lebanon, give them the aid back home. The, the Syrian government wants legitimacy. How do you get legitimacy? As if you get the international community to recognize you and to return to Syria, to provide money, to rebuild the country. And the only way the international community would do that is if, if the people go back and they don't threaten uh, to, to knock on Europe's door. So it's a very, it's a situation these people find themselves in um, where politicians are playing politics and these people are trying to live. Who is more likely to return? Oh, well, somebody who doesn't come, let's say, from a rebel bastion or what was a rebel bastion, somebody who did not take part in any protest, someone who left at the beginning just to look for a job basically women and children as well, who, who are not really worried to be forcibly um, forcibly uh, conscripted in, in the army. Those are the people who tend to go back or the elderly, for example. And I mean, I know numbers are always political, especially when it comes to refugees. But has the Lebanese government told us how many people we're talking about here? You'll get numbers from the president and you will get numbers from the head of the general security. They're talking tens of thousands have returned. Um, the UN is very tight-lipped because they're in a very difficult position. But what we understand is that only a few thousand have returned. These voluntary returns every now and then a few hundred get on a bus and go back home. I would say a very small fraction. Remember, one million registered with the United Nations. There are others who are not registered with the UN. So in June last year, you reported that the international community was withholding reconstruction money and they were using it as leverage to persuade the Syrian government to do what exactly? Well, to engage in a credible political process, to engage with the United Nations, to draft a new constitution, uh, to ensure that free elections are held. Um, Damascus is not engaging, and they have been procrastinating, and we've seen UN envoys hold uh, numerous meetings to try to get the government to cooperate. Uh, but at the end of the day, if Damascus were to agree to these political reforms and rewrite the constitution, what you would be doing is giving up power. Would they give up power? Power that they didn't lose on the battlefield? Now they, they, that they control 60% of the country, they have the backing of Russia. Why would they give up power now when they never, when they, it was never their intention throughout all these years? Now, you've covered these departures from Lebanon, but what happens when people actually go back? What I understand from the United Nations is that the UN tries to visit these people once they have returned. Um, they have been given access on in certain cases, but not in all cases. This is what I understand. But the problem is what the United Nations wants is to be able to to visit whenever they want. They they don't want to just, you know, be able to, to, to visit a returnee once and, and that's it. They want to be able to visit regularly. I don't think they have that authority uh, for the time being. 
But what the United Nations is trying to do is get these security guarantees in place in order to say, okay, fine, now we will support these returns, or fine, now we will we will support um, uh, with reconstruction money or aid once these refugees return. But they're not going to do that unless they get guarantees that these people will be secure um, and that they will just not come back and then because of the absence of the rule of law, they can just be arrested for no reason whatsoever and and their family will never know um, who, who, their whereabouts. And that touches a little bit on my next question, which is for these people who end up going back, what kind of society are they going back to? Well, it, it really depends which area you go to. Um, of course, the government has supporters. There is no doubt about that, or else it wouldn't have been able um, to survive. But even among its supporters, there's a lot of public discontent at the moment because the lack of fuel, um, the dire economic conditions. So there's this concern, of course. And then you have others who have just given up and who say, you know, we don't, yes, we wanted freedom and, and democracy, but right now we're just, we just want to survive. But of course, there are millions and millions of people who do not want uh, and who cannot and who won't live under Assad's rule. And those people are up in the north. What is going to happen to them? Um, how will they ever reconcile with the state? Um, you're talking three million alone in Idlib. This, is, this, this doesn't include those in, in the Aleppo countryside or, you know, how, how are they going to reconcile with the, with the state? Can Syrians live together again? Can they live at peace after all what has happened? And that's the question. Can Syrians live together again? Where fighting has ended so far, we've been seeing surrender, not reconciliation. But for people like Shaima, that dream of returning to Syria keeps them going. She says her biggest hope is to return to her country. She wishes it were quiet, civilized, with no problems. That's what she keeps saying. She wishes there were no problems. So how do you see all of this, personally, I mean? You've reported on refugee issues and the war for so long, and we're marking eight years now since the start of the uprising. So do you feel like a broken record sometimes? I mean, what goes through your head when you hear those refugee stories just over and over and over again? It's um, it's difficult. It's heartbreaking because it's it's not easy. It's not easy, especially for example, when you go to these camps in winter and you see how their homes are flooded and their mattresses are wet and their blankets are wet and their children are cold. It's 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 very difficult. It's very difficult to to, to see this. You know, where do they get the strength to? to live like this. So many of them, okay, we talk about refugees, but it's, but it's much harder for those who are displaced because in Syria, some of them have been displaced seven, eight times. Could you imagine in eight years being displaced even even three times? Your children don't have school. You, you don't have a home. You just have to keep packing your bags every time your the, the town becomes a front line and, and go find a new home. Uh, how This is a very, very difficult life. And, and when will it end? And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Alexandra Locke and Jasmine Bayumi with Priyanka Tilve, Dina Kisve, Ney Alvarez, 
Amy Walters, and Morgan Waters. Ian Koss was the sound designer. The social media producer is Natalia Aldana. The show's lead producer is Graylin Brashear. Special thanks to Zena Choder, Ali Abbas, and Sarah Musa. And I'm Imtiaz Tayeb. We'll be back next week.